From his vantage point, high above the city, the statue of the happy prince gives of himself in a way that is most astonishing. Oscar Wilde, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to this vintage episode of the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. A new vintage episode is released every Tuesday. Clouds of Witness by Dorothy Sayers will continue episodically every Friday. Please help us to continue producing amazing audiobooks by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com and becoming a supporter. Thank you so much. Today's episode consists of three short stories. In The Model Millionaire, the destiny of a young, ambitious, brilliant pauper changes with the act of his misplaced generosity. The second story, The Happy Prince, is one of Oscar Wilde's renowned fairy tales. Sacrifice and empathy are layered into this beautiful story. Finally, in The Sphinx Without a Secret, we learn of an enigmatic woman who holds a secret so close no suitor can win her. And now, The Happy Prince and Other Tales by Oscar Wilde. Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life, which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit, he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant or even an ill-natured thing in his life. But then he was wonderfully good-looking, with his crisp brown hair, his clear-cut profile and his grey eyes. He was as popular with the men as he was with the women and he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword and a history of the Peninsular War in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking-glass and put the second on a shelf between Rough's Guide and Bailey's Magazine and lived on two hundred a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on the stock exchange for six months. But what was a butterfly to do among bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Picoe and Sochong. Then he had tried selling dry sherry. That did not answer. The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton, the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India and had never found either of them again. Laura adored him and he was ready to kiss her shoestrings. They were the handsomest couple in London and had not a penny piece between them. The colonel was very fond of Huey, but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you have got ten thousand pounds of your own, and we will see about it, he used to say. And Huey looked very glum in those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Holland Park, where the Mertons lived, he dropped in to see a great friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter. Indeed, few people escape that nowadays, but he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange, rough fellow, with a freckled face and a red, ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted by Huey at first, it must be acknowledged, entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are bet and beautiful, people who are 
an artistic pleasure to look at, and an intellectual repose to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world. At least they should do so. However, after he got to know Huey better, he liked him quite as much for his bright, buoyant spirits and his generous, reckless nature, and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man, with a face like wrinkled parchment, and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was flung a coarse brown cloak, all tears and tatters. His thick boots were patched and cobbled, and with one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. "'What an amazing model!' whispered Huey as he shook hands with his friend. "'An amazing model!' shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. "'I should think so! Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day! A trovaille, mon cher, a living Velasquez! My stars, what an etching Rembrandt would have made of him!' "'Poor chap!' said Huey. "'How miserable he looks! But I suppose, to you painters, his face is his fortune!' "'Certainly,' replied Trevor. "'You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you?' "'How much does a model get for sitting?' asked Huey, as he found himself a comfortable seat on a divan. "'A shilling an hour.' "'And how much do you get for your picture, Alan?' "'Oh, for this I get two thousand. "'Pounds?' "'Guineas. Painters, poets, and physicians always get guineas.' "'I think the model should have a percentage,' cried Huey, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense, nonsense! Why, look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone, and standing all day long at one's easel. It's all very well, Huey, for you to talk, but I assure you that there are moments when art almost attains to the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't shatter, I'm very busy. Smoke a cigarette and keep quiet. After some time, the servant came in and told Trevor that the frame-maker wanted to speak to him. "'Don't run away, Huey,' he said as he went out. "'I'll be back in a moment.' The old beggar-man took advantage of Trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him. He looked so forlorn and wretched that Huey could not help pitying him and felt in his pockets to see what money he had. All he could find was a sovereign and some coppers. Poor old fellow, he thought to himself. He wants it more than I do. But it means no handsomes for a fortnight. And he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. The old man started, and a faint smile flitted across his withered lips. Thank you, sir, he said. Thank you. Then Trevor arrived, and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura, got a charming scolding for his extravagance, and had to walk home. That night he strolled into the pallet club about eleven o'clock and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking-room drinking hock and seltzer. "'Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right?' he said as he lit his cigarette. "'Finished and framed, my boy,' answered Trevor. "'And, by the by, you have made a conquest. "'That old model you saw is quite devoted to you. "'I had to tell him all about you, who you are, where you live, "'what your income is, what prospects you have. "'My dear Alan,' cried Huey, "'I shall probably find him waiting for me when I go home. "'But of course you are only joking. "'That poor old wretch.' I wish I could do something for him. I think it is dreadful that anyone should be so miserable. I have got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags were falling to bits. But he looks splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. What seems poverty to you is picturesqueness to me. However, I'll tell him of your offer. Alan, said Huey seriously, you painters are a heartless lot. An artist's heart is his head, 
replied Trevor. And besides, our business is to realize the world as we see it, not to reform it as we know it. A chanson son métier. And now tell me how Laura is. The old model was quite interested in her. You don't mean to say you talked to him about her, said Huey. Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the ten thousand pounds. You told that old beggar all my private affairs? cried Huey, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling. That old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off gold plate, and can prevent Russia going to war when he chooses. What on earth do you mean? exclaimed Huey. What I say, said Trevor. The old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg. He is a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing, and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. Que voulez-vous? La fantasie du millionaire. And I must say he made a magnificent figure in his rags. Or perhaps I should say in my rags. They are an old suit I got in Spain. Baron Hausberg? cried Huey. Good heavens! I gave him a sovereign. And he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign! shouted Trevor, and he burst into a roar of laughter. My dear boy! You'll never see it again. Son affaire, c'est l'argent des autres. I think you might have told me, Alan, said Huey sulkily, and not have let me make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Huey, said Trevor, it never entered my mind that you went about distributing alms in that reckless way. I can understand your kissing a pretty model, but your giving a sovereign to an ugly one, by Jove, no! Besides, the fact is that I really was not at home today to anyone, and when you came in, I didn't know whether Hausberg would like his name mentioned. You know he wasn't in full dress. What a duffer he must think me, said Huey. Not at all. He was in the highest spirits after you left, kept chuckling to himself and rubbing his old wrinkled hands together. I couldn't make out why he was so interested to know all about you, but I see it all now. He'll invest your sovereign for you, Huey, pay you the interest every six months, and have a capital story to tell after dinner. I am an unlucky devil, growled Huey. The best thing I can do is to go to bed. And my dear Alan, you mustn't tell anyone. I shouldn't dare show my face in the row. Nonsense. It reflects the highest credit on your philanthropic spirit, Huey. And don't run away. Have another cigarette and you can talk about Laura as much as you like. However, Huey wouldn't stop, but walked home feeling very unhappy, and leaving Alan Trevor in fits of laughter. The next morning, as he was at breakfast, the servant brought him up a card on which was written, Monsieur Gustave Nodin, de la part de Monsieur le Baron Hausberg. I suppose he's come for an apology said Huey to himself, and he told the servant to show the visitor up. An old gentleman with gold spectacles and grey hair came into the room and said, in a slight French accent, Have I the honour of addressing Monsieur Erskine? Huey bowed. I have come from Baron Hausberg, he continued. The Baron, I beg, sir, that you will offer him my sincerest apologies, stammered Huey. The Baron said the old gentleman with a smile, has commissioned me to bring you this letter. And he extended a sealed envelope. On the outside was written, A wedding present to Hugh Erskine and Laura Merton from an old beggar. And inside was a check for ten thousand pounds. When they were married, Alan Trevor was the best man, and the Baron made a speech at the wedding breakfast. "'Millionaire models,' remarked Alan, "'are rare enough, but by Jove, model millionaires are rarer still.'" <laughs> the Hat
unhappy prince. High above the city, on a tall column, stood the statue of the happy prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves of fine gold. For eyes, he had two bright sapphires, and a large red ruby glowed on his sword hilt. He was very much admired indeed. He is as beautiful as a weathercock, remarked one of the town councillors, who wished to gain a reputation for having artistic tastes, only not quite so useful, he added, fearing lest people should think him unpractical, which he really was not. Why can't you be like the happy prince? asked a sensible mother of her little boy, who was crying for the moon. The happy prince never dreams of crying for anything. I'm glad there is someone in the world who is quite happy, muttered a disappointed man as he gazed at the wonderful statue. He looks just like an angel, said the charity children as they came out of the cathedral in their bright scarlet cloaks and their clean white pinafores. How do you know, said the mathematical master, you have never seen one. Ah, but we have in our dreams, answered the children and the mathematical master frowned and looked very severe, for he did not approve of children dreaming. One night there flew over the city a little swallow. His friends had gone away to Egypt six weeks before, but he had stayed behind, for he was in love with the most beautiful reed. He had met her early in the spring, as he was flying down the river after a big yellow moth, and had been so attracted to her slender waist that he had stopped to talk to her. "'Shall I love you?' said the swallow, who liked to come to the point at once, and the reed made him a low bow. So he flew round and round her, touching the water with his wings, and making silver ripples. This was his courtship, and it lasted all through the summer. "'It's a ridiculous attachment!' twittered the other swallows. She has no money and far too many relations. And indeed, the river was quite full of reeds. Then, when the autumn came, they all flew away. After they had gone, he felt lonely and began to tire of his lady love. She has no conversation, he said, and I am afraid that she is a coquette, for she is always flirting with the wind and certainly whenever the wind blew, the reed made the most graceful curtsies. I admit that she is domestic, he continued, but I love travelling, and my wife, consequently, should love travelling also. Will you come away with me? he said finally to her. But the reed shook her head. She was so attached to her home. You have been trifling with me, he cried. I am off to the pyramids. Good-bye. And he flew away. All night long he flew, and at night-time he arrived at the city. Where shall I put up? He said. I hope the town has made preparations. Then he saw the statue on the tall column. I will put up there, he cried. It is a fine position with plenty of fresh air. So he alighted just between the feet of the happy prince. I have a golden bedroom, he said softly to himself as he looked around, and he prepared to go to sleep. But just as he was putting his head under his wing, a large drop of water fell on him. What a curious thing, he cried. There is not a single cloud in the sky, and the stars are quite clear and bright, and yet it is raining. The climate in the north of Europe is really dreadful. The reed used to like rain. But that was merely her selfishness. Then another drop fell. What is the use of a statue if it cannot keep the rain off? He said. I must look for a good chimney pot. And he determined to fly away. But before he had opened his wings, a third drop fell. And he looked up and saw... Ah, what did he see? The eyes of the happy prince were filled with tears and tears were running down his golden cheeks. His face was so beautiful in the moonlight that the little swallow was filled with pity. Who are you? he said. I am the happy prince. 
"'Why are you weeping, then?' asked the swallow. "'You have quite drenched me.' "'When I was alive, and had a human heart,' answered the statue, "'I did not know what tears were, "'for I lived in the palace of the Sans Souci, "'where sorrow is not allowed to enter. "'In the daytime I played with my companions in the garden, "'and in the evening I led the dance in the great hall. "'Round the garden ran a very lofty wall, "'but I never cared to ask what lay beyond it. "'Everything about me was so beautiful. "'My courtiers called me the happy prince, "'and happy indeed I was, "'if pleasure be happiness.' So I lived, and so I died. And now that I am dead, they have set me up here so high that I can see all the ugliness and all the misery of my city. And though my heart is made of lead, yet I cannot choose but weep. What? Is he not solid gold? said the swallow to himself. He was too polite to make any personal remarks out loud. Far away, continued the statue in a low, musical voice, far away in a little street there is a poor house. One of the windows is open, and through it I can see a woman seated at a table. Her face is thin and worn, and she has coarse red hands all pricked by the needle, for she is a seamstress. She is embroidering passion flowers on a satin gown for the loveliest of the queen's maids of honor to wear at the next court ball. In a bed, in the corner of the room, her little boy is lying still. He has a fever and is asking for oranges. His mother has nothing to give him but river water, so he is crying. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, Will you not bring her the ruby out of my sword hilt? My feet are fastened to this pedestal, and I cannot move. I am waited for in Egypt, said the swallow. My friends are flying up and down the Nile and talking to the large lotus flowers. Soon they will go to sleep in the tomb of the great king. The king is there himself in his painted coffin. He is wrapped in yellow linen and embalmed with spices. Round his neck is a chain of pale green jade, and his hands are like withered leaves. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me for one night and be my messenger? The boy is so thirsty, and the mother so sad. I don't think I like boys, answered the swallow. Last summer... When I was staying on the river, there were two rude boys, the miller's sons, who were always throwing stones at me. They never hit me, of course. We swallows fly far too well for that. And besides, I come of a family famous for its agility, but still, it was a mark of disrespect. But the happy prince looked so sad that the little swallow was sorry. It is very cold here, he said, but I will stay with you for one night and be your messenger. Thank you, little swallow, said the prince. So the swallow picked out the great ruby from the prince's sword, and flew away with it in its beak over the roofs of the town. He passed by the cathedral tower, where the white marble angels were sculptured. He passed by the palace, and heard the sound of dancing. A beautiful girl came out on the balcony with her lover, how wonderful the stars are, he said to her. How wonderful is the power of love. I hope my dress will be ready in time for the state ball, she answered. I have ordered passion flowers to be embroidered on it, but the seamstresses are so lazy. He passed over the river and saw the lanterns hanging to the masts of the ships. He passed over the ghetto and saw the old Jews bargaining with each other and weighing out money in copper scales. At last, he came to the poor house and looked in. The boy was tossing feverishly on his bed, and the mother had fallen asleep. She was so tired. In he hopped, and laid the great ruby on the table beside the woman's thimble. Then he flew gently round the bed, 
fanning the boy's forehead with his wings. How cool I feel, said the boy. I must be getting better. And he sank into a delicious slumber. Then the swallow flew back to the happy prince and told him what he had done. It is curious, he remarked, but I feel quite warm now, although it is so cold. That is because you have done a good action, said the prince. And the little swallow began to think, and then he fell asleep. Thinking always made him sleepy. When day broke, he flew down to the river and had a bath. What a remarkable phenomenon, said the professor of ornithology as he was passing over the bridge. A swallow in winter. And he wrote a long letter about it to the local newspaper. Everyone quoted it. It was full of so many words that they could not understand. Tonight I go to Egypt, said the swallow, and he was in high spirits at the prospect. He visited all the public monuments and sat a long time on top of the church steeple. Wherever he went, the sparrows chirruped and said to each other, What a distinguished stranger! So he enjoyed himself very much. When the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. Have you any commissions for Egypt? he cried. I am just starting. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me one night longer? I am waited for in Egypt, answered the swallow. Tomorrow my friends will fly up to the second cataract. The river horse couches there among the bulrushes, and on a great granite throne since the god Memnon. All night long he watches the stars, and when the morning star shines, he utters one cry of joy, and then he is silent. At noon the yellow lions come down to the water's edge to drink. They have eyes like green barrels, and their roar is louder than the roar of the cataract. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Far away across the city I see a young man in a garret. He is leaning over a desk covered with papers, and in a tumbler by his side there is a bunch of withered violets. His hair is brown and crisp and his lips are red as a pomegranate, and he has large and dreamy eyes. He is trying to finish a play for the director of the theatre, but he is too cold to write any more. There is no fire in the grate, and hunger has made him faint. I will wait with you one night longer, said the swallow, who really had a good heart. Shall I take him another ruby? Alas, I have no ruby now, said the prince. My eyes are all that I have left. They are made of rare sapphires, which were brought out of India a thousand years ago. Plug out one of them and take it to him. He will sell it to the jeweler and buy food and firewood and finish his play. Dear prince, said the swallow, I cannot do that. And he began to weep. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Do as I command you. So the swallow plucked out the prince's eye and flew away to the student's garret. It was easy enough to get in, as there was a hole in the roof. Through this he darted and came into the room. The young man had his head buried in his hands, so he did not hear the flutter of the bird's wings, and when he looked up, he found the beautiful sapphire lying on the withered violets. I'm beginning to be appreciated, he cried. This is from some great admirer. Now I can finish my play. And he looked quite happy. The next day, the swallow flew down to the harbor. He sat on the mast of a large vessel, and watched the sailors hauling big chests out of the hold with ropes. Heave ahoy! They shouted as each chest came up. I am going to Egypt, cried the swallow, but nobody minded. And when the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. I am come to bid you goodbye, he cried. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me 
one night longer. It is winter, answered the swallow, and the chill snow will soon be here. In Egypt the sun is warm on the green palm trees, and the crocodiles lie in the mud and look lazily about them. My companions are building a nest in the temple of Baalbek, and the pink and white doves are watching them and cooing to each other. Dear prince, I must leave you, but I will never forget you, and next spring I will bring you back two beautiful jewels in place of those you have given away. The ruby shall be redder than a red rose, and the sapphire shall be as blue as the great sea. In the square below, said the happy prince, there stands a little match girl. She has let her matches fall in the gutter, and they are all spoiled. Her father will beat her if she does not bring home some money, and she is crying. She has no shoes or stockings, and her little head is bare. Pluck out my other eye and give it to her, and her father will not beat her. I will stay with you one night longer, said the swallow. But I cannot pluck out your eye. You would be quite blind then. Swallow. Swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Do as I command you. So he plucked out the prince's other eye and darted down with it. He swooped past the match girl and slipped the jewel into the palm of her hand. What a lovely bit of glass, cried the little girl, and she ran home laughing. Then the swallow came back to the prince. You are blind now, he said, so I will stay with you always. No, little swallow, said the poor prince, you must go away to Egypt. I will stay with you always, said the swallow, and he slept at the prince's feet. All the next day he sat on the prince's shoulder and told him stories of what he had seen in strange lands. He told him of the red ibises, who stand in long rows on the banks of the Nile and catch goldfish in their beaks, of the sphinx who is as old as the world itself and lives in the desert and knows everything, of the merchants who walk slowly by the side of their camels and carry amber beads in their hands, of the king of the mountains of the moon who is as black as ebony and worships a large crystal, of the great green snake that sleeps in a palm tree and has twenty priests to feed it with honey cakes, and of the pygmies who sail over a big lake on large flat leaves and are always at war with the butterflies. Dear little swallow, said the prince, you tell me of marvelous things, but more marvelous than anything is the suffering of men and of women. There is no mystery so great as misery. Fly over my city, little swallow, and tell me what you see there. So the swallow flew over the great city and saw the rich making merry in their beautiful houses while the beggars were sitting at the gates. He flew into dark lanes and saw the white faces of starving children looking out listlessly at the black streets. Under the archway of a bridge, two little boys were lying in one another's arms to try and keep themselves warm. How hungry we are, they said. You must not lie here, shouted the watchman, and they wandered out into the rain. Then he flew back and told the prince what he had seen. I am covered with fine gold, said the prince. You must take it off, leaf by leaf and give it to my poor. The living always think that gold can make them happy. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold the swallow picked off, till the happy prince looked quite dull and gray. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold he brought to the poor, and the children's faces grew rosier, and they laughed and played games in the street. We have bread now, they cried. Then the snow came, and after the snow came the frost. The streets looked as if they were made of silver. They were so bright and glistening. 
Long icicles like crystal daggers hung down from the eaves of the houses. Everybody went about in furs, and the little boys wore scarlet caps and skated on the ice. The poor little swallow grew colder and colder, but he would not leave the prince. He loved him too well. He picked up crumbs outside the baker's door when the baker was not looking, and tried to keep himself warm by flapping his wings. But at last he knew that he was going to die. He had just strength to fly up to the prince's shoulder once more. Goodbye, dear prince, he murmured. Will you let me kiss your hand? I am glad that you are going to Egypt at last, little swallow, said the prince. You have stayed too long here, but you must kiss me on the lips, for I love you. It is not to Egypt that I am going, said the swallow. I am going to the house of death. Death is the brother of sleep, is he not? And he kissed the happy prince on the lips and fell down dead at his feet. At that moment, a curious crack sounded inside the statue, as if something had broken. The fact is that the leaden heart had snapped right in two. It certainly was a dreadfully hard frost. Early the next morning, the mayor was walking in the square below, in company with the town councillors. As they passed the column, he looked up at the statue. Dear me, how shabby the happy prince looks, he says. How shabby indeed, cried the town councillors, who always agreed with the mayor, and they went up to look at it. The ruby has fallen out of his sword, his eyes are gone, and he is golden no longer, said the mayor, in fact. He is little better than a beggar. Little better than a beggar, said the town councillors. And here is actually a dead bird at his feet, continued the mayor. We really must issue a proclamation that birds are not to be allowed to die here. And the town clerk made a note of the suggestion. So they pulled down the statue of the happy prince. As he is no longer beautiful, he is no longer useful, said the art professor at the university. Then they melted the statue in a furnace, and the mayor held a meeting of the corporation to decide what was to be done with the metal. We must have another statue, of course, he said, and it shall be a statue of myself. Of myself, said each of the town councillors, and they quarreled. When I last heard of them, they were quarreling still. What a strange thing, said the overseer of the workmen at the foundry. This broken lead heart will not melt in the furnace. We must throw it away. So they threw it on a dust heap, where the dead swallow was also lying. Bring me the two most precious things in the city, said God to one of his angels. And the angel brought him the leaden heart and the dead bird. You have rightly chosen, said God, for in my garden of paradise this little bird shall sing for evermore, and in my city of gold the happy prince shall praise me. <laughs> THE SPHINX WITHOUT A SECRET One afternoon, I was sitting outside the Café de la Paix, watching the splendor and shabbiness of Parisian life, and wondering over my vermouth at the strange panorama of pride and poverty that was passing before me, when I heard someone call my name. I turned round and saw Lord Murchison. We had not met since we had been at college together, nearly ten years before, so I was delighted to come across him again, and we shook hands warmly. At Oxford we had been great friends. I had liked him immensely. He was so handsome, so high-spirited, and so honorable. We used to say of him that he would be the best of fellows if he did not always speak the truth. But I think we really admired him all the more for his frankness. I found him a good deal changed. He looked anxious and puzzled, 
and seemed to me in doubt about something. I felt it could not be modern skepticism, for Murchison was the stoutest of Tories, and believed in the Pentateuch as firmly as he believed in the House of Peers. So I concluded that it was a woman, and asked him if he was married yet. I don't understand women well enough, he answered. My dear Gerald, I said, women are meant to be loved, not to be understood. I cannot love where I cannot trust, he replied. I believe you have a mystery in your life, Gerald, I exclaimed. Tell me about it. Let us go for a drive, he answered. It is too crowded here. No, not a yellow carriage. Any other color. There, that dark green one will do. And in a few moments we were trotting down the boulevard in the direction of the Madeleine. Where shall we go to? I said. Oh, anywhere you like, he answered. To the restaurant in the Bois. We will dine there, and you shall tell me all about yourself. I want to hear about you first, I said. Tell me your mystery. He took from his pocket a little silver-clasped Morocco case and handed it to me. I opened it. Inside there was the photograph of a woman. She was tall and slight and strangely picturesque with her large, vague eyes and loosened hair. She looked like a clairvoyante and was wrapped in rich furs. What do you think of that face? he said. Is it truthful? I examined it carefully. It seemed to me the face of someone who had a secret, but whether that secret was good or evil I could not say. Its beauty was a beauty molded out of many mysteries. The beauty, in fact, which is psychological, not plastic, and the faint smile that just played across the lips was far too subtle to be really sweet. Well, he cried impatiently, what do you say? She is Gioconda in sables, I answered. Let me know all about her. Not now, he said, after dinner, and began to talk of other things. When the waiter brought us our coffee and cigarettes, I reminded Gerald of his promise. He rose from his seat, walked two or three times up and down the room, and, sinking into an armchair, told me the following story. One evening, he said, I was walking down Bond Street about five o'clock. There was a terrific crush of carriages, and the traffic was almost stopped. Close to the pavement was standing a little yellow brougham, which, for some reason or other, attracted my attention. As I passed by, there looked out from it the face I showed you this afternoon. It fascinated me immediately. All that night, I kept thinking of it, and all the next day. I wandered up and down that wretched row, peering into every carriage and waiting for the yellow brougham. But I could not find Marbelle in Cognue, and at last I began to think she was merely a dream. About a week afterwards I was dining with Madame de Rastel. Dinner was for eight o'clock, but at half-past eight we were still standing in the drawing-room. Finally, the servant threw open the door and announced Lady Alroy. It was the woman I had been looking for. She came in very slowly, looking like a moonbeam in grey lace, and to my intense delight I was asked to take her in to dinner. After we had sat down, I remarked, quite innocently, I think I caught sight of you in Bond Street some time ago, Lady Alroy. She grew very pale, and said to me in a low voice, Pray do not talk so loud, you may be overheard. I felt miserable at having made such a bad beginning, and plunged recklessly into the subject of the French plays. She spoke very little, always in the same low, musical voice, and seemed as if she was afraid of someone listening. I fell passionately, stupidly in love, and the indefinable atmosphere of mystery that surrounded her excited my most ardent curiosity. When she was going away, which she did very soon after dinner, I asked her if I might call and see her. She hesitated for a moment, glanced round to see if anyone was near us, and then said, Yes, tomorrow, at a quarter to five. I begged Madame de Rastel to tell me about her, but all I could learn was that she was a widow with a beautiful house in Park Lane, 
and as some scientific bore began a dissertation on widows as exemplifying the survival of the matrimonially fittest, I left and went home. The next day I arrived at Park Lane punctual to the moment, but was told by the butler that Lady Alroy had just gone out. I went down to the club quite unhappy and very much puzzled, and after long consideration wrote her a letter, asking if I might be allowed to try my chance some other afternoon. I had no answer for several days, but at last I got a little note, saying she would be at home on Sunday at four, and with this extraordinary postscript, please do not write to me here again. I will explain when I see you. On Sunday she received me, and was perfectly charming, but when I was going away, she begged of me, if I ever had occasion to write to her again, to address my letter to Mrs. Knox, care of Whitaker's Library, Green Street. There are reasons, she said, why I cannot receive letters in my own house. All through the season I saw a great deal of her, and the atmosphere of mystery never left her. Sometimes I thought she was in the power of some man, but she looked so unapproachable that I could not believe it. It was really very difficult for me to come to any conclusion, for she was like one of those strange crystals that one sees in museums, which are at one moment clear and at another clouded. At last I determined to ask her to be my wife. I was sick and tired of the incessant secrecy that she imposed on all my visits and on the few letters I sent her. I wrote to her at the library to ask her if she could see me the following Monday at six. She answered yes, and I was in the seventh heaven of delight. I was infatuated with her. In spite of the mystery, I thought then, in consequence of it I see now, now it was the woman herself I loved. The mystery troubled me, maddened me. Why did chance put me in this track? You discovered it then? I cried. I fear so, he answered. You can judge for yourself. When Monday came round, I went to lunch with my uncle, and about four o'clock found myself in the Marylebone Road. My uncle, you know, lives in Regent's Park. I wanted to get to Piccadilly, and took a shortcut through a lot of shabby little streets. Suddenly I saw in front of me Lady Alroy, deeply veiled and walking very fast. On coming to the last house in the street, she went up the steps, took out a latch key, and let herself in. Here is the mystery, I said to myself, and I hurried on and examined the house. It seemed a sort of place for letting lodgings. On the doorstep lay her handkerchief, which she had dropped. I picked it up and put it in my pocket. Then I began to consider what I should do. I came to the conclusion that I had no right to spy on her and I drove down to the club. At six I called to see her. She was lying on a sofa in a tea-gown of silver tissue, looped up by some strange moonstones that she always wore. She was looking quite lovely. I am so glad to see you, she said. I have not been out all day. I stared at her in amazement, and pulling the handkerchief out of my pocket, handed it to her. You dropped this in Cumnor Street this afternoon, Lady Alroy, I said very calmly. She looked at me in terror, but made no attempt to take the handkerchief. What were you doing there? I asked. What right have you to question me? She answered. The right of a man who loves you, I replied. I came here to ask you to be my wife. She hid her face in her hands and burst into floods of tears. You must tell me. I continued. She stood up, and looking me straight in the face, said, Lord Murchison, there is nothing to tell you. You went to meet someone, I cried. This is your mystery. She grew dreadfully white and said, I went to meet no one. Can't you tell the truth? I exclaimed. I have told it, she replied. I was mad, frantic. I don't know what I said, but I said terrible things to her. Finally, I rushed out of the house. She wrote me a letter the next day. I sent it back unopened and started for Norway with Alan Colville. After a month I came back 
and the first thing I saw in the morning post was the death of Lady Alroy. She had caught a chill at the opera and had died in five days of congestion of the lungs. I shut myself up and saw no one. I had loved her so much. I had loved her so madly. Good God, how I loved that woman! You went to the street, to the house in it, I said. Yes, he answered. One day I went to Cumnor Street. I could not help it. I was tortured with doubt. I knocked at the door, and a respectable-looking woman opened it to me. I asked her if she had any rooms to let. Well, sir, she replied, the drawing-rooms are supposed to be let, but I have not seen the lady for three months, and as rent is owing on them, you can have them. Is this the lady? I said, showing the photograph. That's her, sure enough, she exclaimed. And when is she coming back, sir? The lady is dead, I replied. Oh, sir, I hope not, said the woman. She was my best lodger. She paid me three guineas a week merely to sit in my drawing-rooms now and then. She met someone here, I said, but the woman assured me that it was not so, that she always came here alone and saw no one. What on earth did she do here? I cried. She simply sat in the drawing-room, sir, reading books and sometimes had tea, the woman answered. I did not know what to say, so I gave her a sovereign and went away. Now what do you think it all meant? You don't believe the woman was telling the truth. I do. Then why did Lady Alroy go there? My dear Gerald, I answered. Lady Alroy was simply a woman with a mania for mystery. She took these rooms for the pleasure of going there with her veil down and imagining she was a heroine. She had a passion for secrecy, but she herself was merely a sphinx without a secret. Do you really think so? I am sure of it, I replied. He took out the Morocco case, opened it, and looked at the photograph. I wonder, he said at last. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this vintage episode of The Happy Prince and Other Tales by Oscar Wilde. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a supporter by going to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. And thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>